So at the end of John 11, and that can be found on page 1083 in the Bibles in front of you. That's John chapter 11 on page 1083. And we'll be starting to read at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this... Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. But he did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the, from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Good evening. Thank you, Ruth, for reading. If you can just keep your Bibles open, um, and then we'll start to have a little look at that. Before we do, um, let me just open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, our Saviour, who gave his life so that we can have life in his name. And we come to these precious words in John. Help us to be ready to hear you speak to us, And to be willing to respond. And let you you mould us to become more like Jesus. So that your name may be glorified in us. In your name. Amen. Amen. All right. I thought I would start with some rather surprising personal information. Uh, I am a country music fan. I can... I can see the astonishment in your faces. You thought I might be meatloaf after this morning, but a country music fan I am. Um, And a couple of weeks ago, I went to the annual country music festival at the O2, where some of the biggest American stars came over for a weekend of country music. And one of the stars who who came and I enjoyed listening to was a bloke called Jordan Davis, who recently has held the number one position in the country music charts with a song entitled, What My World Spins Around. Well, the song starts off with a possible list, a paycheck on a Friday. Obviously, being a country song, it has to be a brand new truck. 
Um, time with friends, a holiday at the beach, maybe family, fishing. Well, the list went on and on. Well, eventually, he romantically comes to the conclusion that his world spins around the girl in his life. So, to be honest, a typical country song. But it got me thinking, what does my world spin around? What does your world spin around? And there are really only two answers to this question. Either Jesus or self. Is Jesus the reason I get up every morning? Does my world spin around Jesus or does my world spin around myself, my wants and my desires? A world devoted to self and devoid of Jesus or a world centered on him? I guess, obviously, just like any old vinyl record, Christians will often spin wonky but ultimately, our lives are centered on Christ. And tonight, in this passage that Ruth has read, we're going to see these two responses to this question. From the chief priests and the Pharisees, whose world spin, spins around status, themselves, and their political reputation, and this obviously leads to hostile rejection of Jesus. From the majority of the Jews, whose world spins around the signs, but they are still blinded to Jesus and so reject him. And finally, from the believer and the disciples of Jesus, whose world spins around him, where their whole life is centered on Jesus and their lives are devoted to following him. Well, to give us direction as we unpack these verses, I have four headings, and you can see them on your handouts. Jesus divides, people reject Jesus to save themselves, a rejected Jesus dies to save all, and finally the big question, our world, rejection or trust? So Jesus divides. So we start this evening at verse 45, John 11 verse 45, many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Well, the first question we need to answer is, who are these Jews? Well, if we turn back a few verses, we're in verse 30, we are told that these Jews who were with Mary in her house, consoling her after the death of Lazarus. They knew he had died and had been there when he was buried in the tomb. They then followed Mary when she went to meet Jesus after hearing from Martha that Jesus had arrived. Verse 32, they saw Mary falling at his feet and saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They saw Jesus weeping and knew Jesus loved Lazarus. And in verse 37, we see that some of them questioned whether Jesus could have actually kept Lazarus from dying. They then went with Martha and Mary to the tomb. And are there when Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
And then incredibly, they saw Lazarus raised from the dead by Jesus, the resurrection and the giver of life. Now incredibly, these Jews who witnessed these staggering events, witnessing this marvellous and awesome sign to who Jesus is, staggeringly divide into two camps. Some believed in him, while others rejected him and went straight to the Pharisees. This chapter in, in John's Gospel is a watershed. The first 11 chapters deal with the coming of Christ, the first days of his ministry, the signs that confirm his identity, the words he spoke, and you can remember the great I am statements of Jesus bringing us face to face with the Jesus of history. And John has been carefully writing down the good news about Jesus with a purpose, as he writes in chapter 20, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing him you may have life in his name. This actually has been a recent memory verse at the ark. Because this term in the ark, we were doing the seven signs in John. The wine at the wedding, chapter 2. Healing the official son in chapter 4. Healing of the paralytic at the pool in chapter 5. Feeding the 5,000 and walking on water, both in chapter 6. And healing of the man born blind in chapter 9. And culminating with this seventh sign, with the raising of Lazarus at the start of this chapter. And all these signs were specifically written down by John to point to Jesus' identity. To show who Jesus was and why he had come. And as the children in the ark know, Jesus was the promised Messiah, God's son. And he had come into the world to give life in his name by saving all people from, the, from their sins. So this evidence presented by John was there for the sole purpose to enable us to believe in the person of Jesus. Certainly the signs certainly brought a great deal of interest, didn't they? And a great deal of excitement. But they did not bring a living faith in the living saviour. And sadly, of all the crowds that followed Jesus at this time, many left and deserted him. The signs did not produce faith. They are the evidence to which faith responds. And chapter 12 Verse 37 sums this up, where it says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still not, did not believe in them. Their world span around signs, not the person of Jesus. So this was all written for us to believe, not to believe in the signs themselves. Even the Pharisees recognized the signs in verse 47, as we'll read a bit later. For this man performed many signs. No, the signs are only needed to signpost to the person of Jesus, the promised king, the Christ. There is no more evidence that is required than in the first half of John's gospel. 
As he said in the last verse of his gospel, there are many other things that Jesus did, many other signs that he showed. But he didn't need to write these down because these are sufficient. Because what John writes, the written word of God is enough. And he invites us to align ourselves either with those who believe in Jesus or who reject Jesus. These are the only two options Jesus divides for those who believe or those who reject. And staggeringly, these Jews, even after witnessing the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the final glorious sign, there is a division in the way they respond. Some of the Jews believe in the person of Jesus. They saw what Jesus did and believed in him. What they saw led them to a belief in Jesus the person. While others who saw the same things, also witnessing the miraculous raising of Lazarus, accepted the sign. Well, that's hard not to, bearing in mind that Lazarus was walking in front of them. But then they rejected the person of Jesus. Off they went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They rejected him. They rejected who he was and what he had come to do. And today, for all of us, these are the only two responses to Jesus. Either we see what Jesus has done, which is so clearly written in the Gospels, and we see his death on the cross and the resurrection, the ultimate sign to who he is, and then trust in him, or we reject him and turn our backs on all the evidence There is no halfway house in this. We are either all in or we are all out. People reject Jesus to save themselves in verse 47 to 48. We then move on to how this response of complete rejection pans out. The chief priests and the Pharisees, after hearing about the raising of Lazarus, guess what? Urgently call the council together. They're in a panic and seriously worried. So I guess like all people, they call a meeting to discuss their threat, this threat to their position and authority. Now the Jewish council of Sanhedrin had civil jurisdiction according to the Jewish law. It could order arrests by its officers and could judge cases not involving capital punishment as they actually required Roman confirmation. So the council and the Sanhedrin ruled the Jewish people under Roman rule. They were politically and religiously powerful. But here they are. They're in a bind. What are we to do? Goes up the cry from the council. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What are the problems that they envisage? Well, firstly, they could not deny that the spectacular signs had taken place. There was no way they could claim that Jesus was a hoax. No one would accept that. There were too many eyewitnesses. They had valid and authenticated reports about the raising of Lazarus. 
And they surely could not argue or discredit the sign when there was a living, breathing Lazarus walking around chatting to people. They did believe that Lazarus, that Jesus had raised Lazarus. They did believe that Lazarus was alive. But this belief did not result in a belief in Jesus. It actually drove them in a completely different direction. It drove them to hostility and resistance. But how can they ignore Jesus? It happened. They have evidence. How can they ignore the evidence when they have seen and heard about this amazing sign of Lazarus? Interestingly, right at the start of John's Gospel in chapter 1, verse 11, this startling prejudice against Jesus was explained. And verse 11 in chapter 1 says this, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So this rejection and prejudice against Jesus was highlighted right from the beginning by John. And we know that's all evident around us at the moment, isn't it? We see it around us all the time. I looked up the definition of prejudice. And this is the definition. The definition is an unreasonable attitude that is unusually resistant to rational influence. An unreasonable attitude that is unusually resistant to rational influence. And that's a perfect definition of the Sanhedrin's attitude. What could possibly motivate such hate-filled prejudice against Jesus? And surely as Christians now, we must be ready to experience this too. It's not gone away. There will always be vicious prejudice against Jesus and his followers. So I urge you this evening to be prepared and not surprised when you come across it. But why is there such hate and total rejection when all the evidence points to Jesus as our saviour? Well, this is explained in the second section of verse 48. Self-preservation. Their fear was that many more would believe in Jesus after seeing and witnessing these miraculous signs. They were politically astute and massively concerned that as more people believed and followed Jesus, this could cause instability and their privileged position under the Romans would be at risk. Self-preservation was their driving force. Personal prestige and their status is what their world span around. As it says in verse 48, they feared the Romans would come and take away both our place and our nation. The place here refers to the temple. So the Jewish authorities, instead of seeing the signs that Jesus did and believing in him, that is the resurrection and the life, rejected him and focused on their power, their status, their comfortable and privileged lifestyles. They didn't want to be threatened. And sadly, although many today have heard the good news of Jesus, the evidence is there. They read about him in the Bibles that are so readily available. They have spoken to Christians. They may have spoken to you. They still reject him 
because they're not prepared to lose the control of their lives. But back to the Sanhedrin, what are they going to do? Something must urgently be done. As far as they're concerned, everything is on the line. And at that point, Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks up with arrogant defiance. He has heard all the anxiety from the members of the council and comes up with the obvious political solution. Verse 49. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas gets straight to the point, doesn't he? There's no dithering with him. We need to get rid of Jesus. He has to die, and then we can save ourselves. The perfect solution. Slightly surprised the rest of the council couldn't see it. Sure, yeah, it's a tragedy for Jesus. A good person comes to an untimely death. But it's a political solution for an inconvenient problem. Jesus dies as a political scapegoat to preserve the political future of the chief priests, the Pharisees, the temple, and the Jewish people. And that was a human plan. But the divine plan was totally different. And we move on to a rejected Jesus dies to save all. We turn to verse 51 and 52. We now see the divine intention that is behind everything. Behind the words of Caiaphas, we see the perfect plan of God. God speaks through Caiaphas. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. As I read this, I think this is just one of the most glorious summaries of Jesus' mission. Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. The big word in this sentence is actually three letters long, and that is the word for. Jesus would die, and that was the intention of the Jewish authorities. And most people since then, and all the way to what, April the 2nd, 2023, would admit that Jesus did die. But for the Jewish leaders and for many of our friends and neighbours, he actually died for, for nothing. The Jewish leaders thought he had died for their continued security and social standing to protect the temple and the people of Israel from, from the Romans. How ironic then a few la- that if only a few, la- a few years later the temple was destroyed and the Jewish nation was actually scattered. Many people today lead lives where Jesus died for nothing. They reject him and cling on to what they have, their own strengths. And then ironically, just like the Jewish leaders, 
lose everything. And his death means nothing. How blind. But the Lord's plan was that Jesus would die. He would die for the nation. And as we read earlier, the children of God are those who received him and believed in his name. And that is who Jesus died for. The little word for speaks of sacrifice. It's a temple picture of an innocent lamb being sacrificed for the sins of the people. So Jesus died as an offering, a sacrifice for the sins of all nations. As Caiaphas said in his prophetic word, it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. We see God's plans behind these incredible truths. Jesus would give his life on the cross so that we would not perish. Well, perish is a word that in the Bible refers to being separated from God forever. The certain and right judgment of rejecting God our maker. So the word perish here speaks of helpless, eternal separation from the one true God who made us. A devastating word depicting complete, eternal separation from God. So verses 51 and 52 are thrilling. They're life-giving They're saving us from a terrible freight. For all people not to perish, Jesus had to die. This is God's salvation plan. That Jesus would die to save all nations. A substitutionary death. One man must die for the people. One man must be sacrificed for all nations. One man must die in the place of others. Because Jesus dies, not only Lazarus will live, but everybody who trusts in him will live with him. His death in our place, taking our death on the cross, is the very basis upon which we will live forever. Jesus brings life and resurrection. Because... He is the resurrection and life. A rejected Jesus dies to save all. God's plan. Now our world, rejection or trust. Verse 54 to 57 brings us to the start of the Passion Week. So Jesus now starts his journey to the cross to complete the mission that he came to this earth to accomplish the salvation of all people from all nations. And God has the perfect plan, which is not altered by the plotting of men. And the time for the crucifixion is not here yet. So Jesus, after the council has started to make plans to put him to death, withdraws to a bathroom with his disciples. And we see these... In these three verses, 
three different preparations, but actually only two responses, either rejection or trust, depending on what your world spins around. Either we reject him and put our whole world, our whole being, and everything we are in the pierced hands of our saviour, all in or all out, no other options. So what was Jesus and his disciples doing? Jesus with his disciples, verse 54. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Epaphram, and there he stayed with his disciples. So as the death sentence on Jesus was given, the persecution increased. And here we see the disciples and all believers draw close to Jesus and put their trust and faith in him. That's where their world was, with Jesus. What were the Jews doing in verse 55? Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. I love how ironic John is here, isn't it? The only true way for them to actually purify themselves is by accepting Jesus. But they're so blind. Off to the temple to purify themselves, but not to Jesus. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Well, they kept looking for Jesus. We're not told why. But there are still a lot of people like this who keep looking. They want to be involved with church, but they never really find Jesus on their own, as their own personal saviour and Lord. It is great to look, but that is never enough. As we, as we have seen, many saw Jesus and the signs he performed, but that was never enough. It is never enough. Sadly, this is still rejection. So please, tonight, if you're looking, may I encourage you to take the next step, step and accept Jesus as your Lord. Be all in for Jesus. Let Jesus be at the, at the center of your world and let your world spin around Jesus, however wonky that may be. And finally, the third group, what were they doing? What were the chief priests and the Pharisees, what were they up to? Right at this passage that was read, we can see that we're continuing to plot to put Jesus to death. Hostile rejection to destroy him, and that, or that is what they thought, but God was in control, because through the death of Jesus on the cross, Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather all of us, you and me, into his kingdom. And surely as we look forward to Easter, we want to be with Jesus, with him at the center of our being, our whole world devoted to him, as we've already said, all in for Jesus. And in the light of the evidence we have in front of us, John's account of who Jesus is and what he came to do, I guess I ask, 
What does your world spin around?